Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by our teaching pastor, Ian Simpkins, as we start a brand new series, Relationship Goes. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. And also on Monday nights at 6.30 p.m. We hope to see you there. One sec, one second. I'll just be a second, one sec, sorry. There's the talk bubble, I see the bubble, it's there. It's... Okay, that's, oh, sorry, he just responded, nope, sorry. Uh, um, anyone ever been to coffee with someone like this? Anyone here right now with someone like this? <laughs> it's kind of an epidemic, isn't it? Like, the zombie apocalypse is already here, and it looks like this. It's absurd. I cannot believe how far we've come as a people. Like, if they were to remake The Breakfast Club, it would be a silent film, wouldn't it? <laughs> right? Just two hours of kids on their phones. And it's, I mean, who can, who can forget the Super Bowl kid? You guys remember this moment with the, uh, it's Justin Timberlake, and there he is, having the time of his life. Honest, we don't talk enough about this guy. This guy's having a blast, though. But this, this poor guy. Now, uh, I think New York has come up with a pretty killer solution, though. Here's, here's what they're doing to solve that seeing eye person. Um, <laughs> just lead me around the town, right? And it's, it's not just the cell phone usage. It's the selfies. Am I right? Anyone here? What is, what is the deal with the selfies? In 2013, it was Oxford Dictionary's word of the year. And I thought, we're done as a people. We're over. That's it. I can't. Like, look at this picture of Hillary Clinton and all of her friends. Um, no one's even looking at her. Not a single person is making eye contact. Oh, man. So then you see, you know, like a, like a picture like this, which on the surface right here, like that just seemed like a sweet picture, right? This is a, a woman out with the love of her life and what they're having, they're sharing this romantic moment until you realize. I'm done. I'm out. I can't. I can't do this anymore. Right? Like how, how far have we come that I think maybe we could rename taking a selfie, just call it taking a lonely, right? Like, remember when there used to be a time as a people that if you wanted your photo taken, what would you do? You, <laughs> thank you, you'd ask somebody, excuse me, stranger, could you take our picture? Could you take my picture? Now, I realize I've been ragging on them for a while, but I don't want to let them have all the fun, so I thought we could take a selfie together. Wouldn't that be fun? Well, I'm doing it anyway, so, uh, so here we go. There we, are you, there it is. Everyone, oh, isn't technology amazing? All right, on the count of three, everyone say cheese. One, two, three, cheese. <laughs> How amazing is our tech team to be able to pull that off? That blows my mind. Now, the reason I'm talking about technology and our disconnection and selfies is that I believe as a culture, as a people, we long for relationships. We long for deep, intimate connection. In fact, a little bit later, I'm going to talk about how we're hardwired for it, and yet we often struggle. And you might be surprised that the Bible actually talks a great deal about relationships. In fact, maybe most famously, here's what Jesus himself said. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. 
The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does that sound like? Relationships. Relationships with God and relationships with others. He was asked, can you summarize the whole thing? Tell us what it's all about. And he says, love God, love others. Love God, love others. That sounds a lot like relationships, and yet I think we really, really struggle to do them well. In fact, a couple months ago, uh, Cigna Health did a survey of 20,000 Americans, and here are some of their findings. 46% of Americans report sometimes or always feeling alone. 43% say they sometimes or always feel like the relationships are not meaningful. 20% say they rarely or never feel close to people. 47% say they rarely or never have meaningful in-person interactions with others. And this last one, 13% say zero people know them well. Now, for some of you, maybe that surprises you. And maybe others of you are like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. In fact... That might be you this morning, and if that's the case, please know this, you are not alone. If you struggle to connect at a deep, intimate level, you are not alone. I think in various different ways, we all struggle with that. But we have to know that that was never God's original plan for us. In fact, his original design was for us to know and be known, both by him and by others, so how, how do we actually do that? Well, I, th- I thought we'd start at the actual beginning. If you're following in a physical Bible, turn all the way to the left in Genesis. We'll actually be in Genesis chapter 2 for a bit here. And uh, he- here's what's happening in Genesis chapter 2. It says, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So work and care and cultivation was always a part of the plan. It's not a result of the curse, as some of you perhaps think. And the Lord God commanded the man... You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And people often ask, why would God bother putting a tree there at all? And this is just conjecture, this isn't doctrine, but I think the tree is there to communicate to us from the very beginning of the story that obedience to God is where true purpose, meaning, identity, and joy is found. At the very beginning, we're given that picture. So it goes on. Here's how it goes on. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, before you cringe at the word helper, one, it's the same word often used to describe the Holy Spirit. Two, it's also the same word used to describe a warrior. And three, it implies that men need some help. Can I get an amen, ladies? Yeah, right, thank you. Applause even, sure, yeah. So this word actually has a lot more, it's way more enigmatic than maybe it seems at first blush. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. No suitable helper was found. So in this newly created world, of animals and waterfalls and forests. Each time, each day God creates, he kind of steps back and gives himself a little like celestial pat on the back and just goes, ah, that's good. That's good, Father, Son, Trinity. High five, that's good, we did it, way to go. And then he sees Adam by himself. And it's the first time that God says, that's not good. That's not good to see Adam alone by himself. Thankfully, God is going to remedy this loneliness dilemma, and he creates, right? <laughs> that was a throwaway. I'm so sorry. So here's, here's what happens next, though. 
So God sees Adam alone, says that's not good, says the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And as a quick aside, ladies, men have been falling into a deep sleep since the creation of the world. Go easy on us, please. Men are like taking photos of the reference right now, like, see, it's in the Bible. Here's how the story goes on. So while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, so it was clearly a deep sleep. He was able to snag a rib without him waking up, closed up the place with flesh, and the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And again, this is easy to miss. But just picture this scene, okay? We all know that first impressions count, and Eve was just made, so it's been a big day for her. And the first thing that Adam does when he sees her, in the Hebrew, this actually rhymes. It's like a poem or a song. So his loneliness dilemma has been addressed, and his response is poetry, is a song, is rejoicing in this moment that he's now no longer alone. And let's be really clear here, this passage isn't exclusively about marriage either. It's about how we're all hardwired for deep, meaningful connection and vulnerability. That's all of us. And, And don't miss this part. This part's really significant here. It says, he brought her to the man. All throughout scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that God is a gift giver. He loves providing for his children. He gives gifts, not wages. We see this reiterated over and over and over again. He brought her to the man. It's it's a gift for both of them, for their flourishing, for their intimacy. This was the original design. So here's how the chapter ends, verse 25. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Total, unblemished vulnerability and connection without shame. But unfortunately, that was severed. Look at how chapter three begins. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? See, I want you to notice something here. We talk about the fall, and this is pretty churchy language. When we talk about the fall, it began not as an argument, but as a suggestion. Did God really say that? Can can he really be trusted? The servant here is planting the seed of distrust. Now, unfortunately, the scene is often depicted as like the temptation of an apple. But can we be honest? Who's ever been tempted by an apple before, right? Like, put some caramel on that. Come back to me. Uh, You got any cake back there, right? Like that's, it's not about an apple. It's about believing or disbelieving that God has our best in mind. It's about questioning God's goodness. And now listen to Eve's response. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Did you notice anything there? It's subtle, but it's a little bit different from what we actually read in chapter two. Here's what it says in chapter two. God says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. It doesn't say anything about touching it. And this maybe seems insignificant, but we already begin to see Eve veering from what God had originally said and promised. You start to see the trajectory shift just a little bit. You can hear the serpent, can't you? Did he really say that? Is that really true? In fact, I think God's 
He's trying to hold out on you, actually. He knows that if you eat this, you'll be like him. And so can a God like that really be trusted? So as the story goes, many of us know, they, they disobey. They eat, and then this is what happens. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. They hid from their creator, the one they had never, they've never hidden from before in their life. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? What a heartbreaking question. God knows where they are. He's asking, where did you go? Where is your heart? Why are you hiding? Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid, and I think we've been hiding ever since. They went from total, perfect connection of vulnerability to shame and hiding, and I think we've been hiding ever since. They, they go from walking with to hiding from. Now, I think there are lots of ways that we hide, and I won't cover all of them, but here are four that kind of stand out to me of different ways that we today, in our context, tend to hide. The first is one that's really personal for me, and that's humor. Anyone here hide with humor, right? If things start to get like a little intimate or a little, like I, I, will, I will crack a joke. Uh, sarcasm is often sort of my weapon of choice, right? Like that's how, that's much how my family is. Like I will often use humor as a way of not either getting too close or letting someone else get too close. For you, maybe it's achievement, Maybe you hide in your castle of accomplishments. And, th- and these aren't bad things, but maybe like you find all your purpose and worth and identity in how successful you are. So you hold up all of your achievements as a way of keeping people at a distance. Maybe it's actual distance. This, this can be physical distance. This can also be emotional distance, right? I can't tell you how many couples I've counseled that have said, my wife and I have been like glorified roommates for a decade. We look fine on social media and all of our friends think it's great, but we barely even talk. You could be in the same house and have all sorts of distance. And the fourth way we hide, this one might surprise you, is religion. In fact, I think religion is one of the safest places to hide, right? Say the right things, go to the right places, be that person around those friends. It appears like intimacy, it appears like vulnerability, but it actually couldn't be further from the truth. You behave a certain way, and yet you know deep down, and I still feel disconnected. Still, I still feel like I'm hiding. So how, how do we actually come out of hiding and truly connect? I think the word is vulnerability. I, I think it has to be. And one reason I think that we don't do vulnerability well is because we just don't understand it. Like ask anybody next week what vulnerability means to them and you'll get an endless amount of different answers. And so uh, maybe the leading expert in vulnerability is a woman named Brene Brown. I thought, let's just learn a little bit from her about what vulnerability actually is. Take a look. So I think the biggest myth about vulnerability is that it's weakness. I think a lot of people were raised to believe that. It was modeled, I think, certainly in our culture. Um, We see that a lot, that to be vulnerable, to be open, to be exposed is to be weak. Um, And the truth is, you know, what I found in my research is that vulnerability is not weakness. In fact, I would argue that it's our greatest measure of courage. When we went out and asked people, what is vulnerability? We heard things like, 
Vulnerability is the first date after my divorce. Vulnerability is starting my own company. Vulnerability is taking responsibility for something that went wrong at work. Vulnerability is sitting with my wife who has stage three breast cancer and making plans for our young kids. Um, vulnerability is taking my business public. You know, the definition I use in my work of vulnerability is simply uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Vulnerability is about the willingness to show up and to be seen even when there are no guarantees. And it's interesting to me, I mean, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, I gave a talk, um, it's probably a couple years now, and it was being translated by people doing American Sign Language, and they came up before the talk started, and they said, are there any words that you're going to use a lot in your talk that we should you know, know about that are might be different? And I said, well, I use the word vulnerability a lot. And they kind of, there were two of them, and they kind of looked at each other, and they said, oh, we do, we do this for vulnerability. And I said, what does that mean? They said, it means weak in the knees. And I'm like, wow, that's not how I talk about vulnerability. And she said, well, there's only one other sign for vulnerability. And I said, what is it? And she said, and I said, oh, that's what I'm talking about. And so to me, vulnerability is our most accurate measure of courage. I mean, it's pretty powerful when I have 13,000 pieces of data collected over 12 years that I cannot find a single incident or story of courage that was not completely underpinned by vulnerability. I think the problem arises that there's so many little paradoxes with vulnerability, and one of them is that vulnerability is courage in you, but weakness in me. When I meet you, it's the first thing I look for in you, but it's the last thing I want to show you in me. And so I think to really put ourselves out there, knowing that if we do that enough, we're going to fail, I just don't think it gets more courageous than that. Vulnerability is not weakness. It's our greatest measure of courage. There's a, a poet and a songwriter named Chris Jamie. Here's what he puts it. To share your weakness is to make yourself vulnerable, but to, share yourself, uh, to make yourself vulnerable is to show your strength. I read that and I thought, that actually sounds a lot like what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Here's what he said. He said, but he said to me, this is God speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Sort of God saying, my power begins where yours ends. That's how this works. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, that's actually when I'm strong. What appears as weakness actually is strength. It actually is courage. In fact, just a few chapters earlier, he talks about us being these jars of clay, right? And what would happen, they'd have these, these really like flimsy jars made of clay that they would put lights into. And you wouldn't put that in a really solid structure. You put it in one that's really thin. So the clay was so thin that it literally would glow light. And no one would assume that light was coming from the pot itself, It was containing something greater. And it was actually like the vulnerability was the thin parts of that structure that allowed it to give light. Wasn't that Leonard Cohen, right? The cracks are how the light get in. I think that's how it get out too. Our our weakness, our vulnerability is when the gospel is most real and on display because it's not about us being great. It's not about us having it all together, having a perfect life and a perfect social media stream and a perfect marriage. It's about being honest and saying, man, when I was totally broken, and God's strength came in and did something remarkable in me. I think Rabbi Bob Dylan put it best. He said this, ain't no use jiving, ain't no use joking, everything is broken. 
If we all know that, why do we continue to walk around and pretend like everything's all perfect? Vulnerability means uncertainty, risk, emotional exposure, but it's also the birthplace of love and joy and belonging. We know this to be true. And yet so often we just sort of get stuck kind of in this mode, right? Walking around, keeping ourselves distracted. So where, where do we start? I think it starts by dispelling the myths. So what I want to do is offer four myths and then four challenges to kind of to kind of hopefully wake us up a little bit to this reality. So, what, so here are the four myths. Uh, the first is that vulnerability is weakness. A lot of these are from Brene Brown, and she was just talking about this idea. How many of you were raised with the notion that courage was important in your household? How many of you were also raised that vulnerability is weakness? Yeah, right. So essentially, be brave, just don't ever put yourself out there, right? It, does, it doesn't make any sense. Essentially, be brave, but don't put yourself out there. It just doesn't work. In fact, that word courage... The word cur from the Latin means your whole heart. So it's been argued that courage means to tell the story of your true self with your whole heart. That's part of what courage actually is. The great Fred Rogers said it this way. He says, the greatest gift you can ever give is your honest self. Are we actually giving our honest self or are we doing this dance because we feel like we need to always act like we have it together? The greatest gift you can give is your honest self. Number two, I don't do vulnerability. I don't do vulnerability. Brene says that you either do vulnerability or vulnerability does you, right? That's sort of how that works. It's coming for all of us. And pain that's not transformed is most always transmitted. Are we tracking with that? Pain that's not transformed, that isn't processed, pain that's not transformed will be transmitted. It will come out often in ways that you will not want it to. And it's so much easier to cause pain than to feel it. But we have to be willing to say, here I am, fully and completely. Number three, I can go it alone. The myth that I can go it alone. I mean, literally, our church is called community for a reason. We were not designed to do this thing alone. In fact, I read a, uh, an article from Psychology Today a couple months ago. It said, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. It's living the way that we were intended to live. And number four, trust comes before vulnerability. That's a myth. I'm not saying just spill your guts to anyone you bump into on the streets at any point in your life. That's not a great idea. But part of vulnerability means taking a little bit of a risk. And let me just say this clearly. Like, to hear your story is a privilege, okay? So be wise. But it's sort of like pedals on a bicycle. Sometimes you might have to take the first step. And yeah, it is sometimes dangerous, but it's worth it. So here are four challenges I want to kind of leave us with. And before I share them... Please don't try and do all four of these. I know some of you overachievers are like, I'm going to take care of all four of them today on my own. I got this. That's, I like your gumption. Don't, don't do that. Pick one of them that really resonates with you and, and write it down or, or take a photo of the screen or take a selfie. <laughs> but if you want to do one of them this next week, uh, number one, answer honestly. What I mean by that is, how many here have ever had somebody ask, hey, how are you? And we all say what? Ah, fine, great. Anyone ever said fine when they weren't actually fine? Yeah, we, we all have. And again, I'm not saying have a meltdown in front of a total stranger. That's maybe not. But what about the people actually in our lives who actually care? What if we actually stopped and said, you know, I'm pretty good, but I'm actually kind of, I'm tired in this season. I'm really struggling with my marriage or my job or my neighbors or whatever, whatever it is. I think, I think we try really hard to protect this sort of like social media persona, don't we? Right? Our marriages are always awesome. Our vacations are always exotic. Our food is always organic, right? It's always farm to table. I've never once seen somebody like, Burger King, fifth night in a row. <laughs> no. 
No, it's always the best parts of ourselves. And what we end up doing is we compare our blooper reel with everyone else's highlight reel. And we think, man, everyone else is living their best life now. Let's stop. It's not real. It's not true. It's not who we actually are. Number two, admit a weakness. Admit a weakness. Now, this is, this is tough. I, I get this. Who wants to do this? Nobody wants to do this. But can I just be honest with you? Christians in particular are terrible at this one. Like, the amount of times I've seen Christians in, like, a job interview, like, tell, tell me about your greatest weakness. They're like, well, my greatest weakness is I care too much. I work too hard. They're like, cool, not self-aware. Like, doesn't, you know, like, <laughs> I get that that's really tough. In fact, I remember my very first year in ministry, I was drowning. And I don't mean that to sound dramatic. I was, I was considering leaving ministry altogether. Like, it was just that bad. And I was like, I heard God's voice wrong. I don't have the chops for this. I don't have the skill set. I don't, I just, I need to, and I remember calling up a mentor and I was terrified. This is a friend of mine. And I called him, my hand was shaking. I was like, why am I so nervous? And I just kind of cried out to him. And what he did was so, so important because he didn't just say, you're awesome. Reach for the stars. He said, God's not done with you yet. Don't you dare leave. He saw my vulnerability, and he didn't pander. He didn't placate, but he spoke life back into me and said, God's not done with you yet. Who who made you think it's about you anyway? God called you to this. He's going to bring you through this. God's not done with you yet. I will never forget that conversation. And it never would have happened. I hadn't first picked up the phone and be like, I'm falling apart, man. So maybe start small. Maybe ask for advice or help or insight or accountability. Maybe it just starts by saying, hey, can someone... I don't know what I'm doing here. Number three, give a compliment. This one seems strange, but you ever notice how strange it is to give a compliment to someone close to you? Sometimes it's easier to compliment a stranger than it is someone close to us. But what if like this week you actually said, you know what, I don't think I've ever told you this. I love this about your personality. I love watching you raise your kids. I'm so inspired by your passion for the whatever it is. What if we just hit pause for a second? It would bless both of you, I guarantee it. And it feels vulnerable. It really does. That's a, that's a very strange thing to do in our day and age. Hey, I just want to tell you I really love you. Ooh, what? Why? <laughs> right? It's worth it. It's worth it. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a stranger. Maybe it's, honestly, maybe it's writing something in Mother's Day cards more than thanks, Mom. Right? What if it's, man, you've meant so much to me over the years. And I'm so grateful for your influence in my life. Number four, speak up about a hurt. Getting hurt happens, and I realize in a room this size, the, the spectrum of hurt is, is probably far more vast than I realize. We, we gotta speak up. And do it in love. Please, please don't do it trying to start a fight, but do it in love. And say, hey, I, maybe you didn't intend this, maybe you did, but I just gotta let you know that, that really cut me to the core, and that's just not okay, and we can't talk to each other that way. Can we please find a way forward? Let's, let's stop doing that. Do it with love. I think C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly. Here's what he said. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. So whether you're a Jesus person or not, I think we all can agree love is a good starting point. But to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken It will become unbreakable, impenetrable. To love is to be vulnerable. To love at all is to be vulnerable. 
Vulnerability means that we can be hurt, we can be betrayed, we can be taken advantage of. But it also is what allows us to be moved, to have compassion, to have empathy, to take a stand when it matters most. It starts with vulnerability. Back when our story in Genesis 3, this is what we see happens in verse 21. The Lord God, in their defiance, in their rebellion, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Even though they had just severed this relationship, he cares for them. He reaches down. Even in our brokenness, even in our rebellion, he still comes after us. He says, where are you? I have something so much better for you. Even when we screw up, God draws near. And in Jesus, he clothes us a very different kind of way. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Galatia. It says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have, what's the word? Clothe yourself not in fig leaves or animal skin, but with Christ. You've been clothed in Christ. In Jesus, he's the sum and substance of all of God's promises. In Christ, we lack nothing. We get to stop pretending. We get to stop hiding because Christianity isn't coming to God with how great we are. Arms full of all of our talents and skills with arms empty saying, God, here I am just as I am. And God loves us and seeks us and pursues us and forgives us over and over and over again. Vulnerability isn't easy or comfortable or even the quickest way to live, but it is the best because compassion wins, connection wins every time. Let's come out of hiding. Let's stop hiding and live as God designed us to live. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us with that kind of undeserved love that even in our rebellion and our distance and our failure and our shame, remind us that you see us fully and completely anyway. That we can't really hide from you and yet you look through all of that and you say, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter. God, help us to come out of hiding, to be known by you, to be known by others, and to be a light to our hurting and dark world. We thank you, God, and we love you. I pray this in your name. Amen.